0: Ephesians 4, we will read verses 1 through 16, that will be the sermon text for today. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. First we will read Exodus 31, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Exodus 31, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Ohiliab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you regarding the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent. Let us go now to Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, though the language of tabernacle is not found in this text, here we read of the gifts that God has given to the new covenant people of God for the building up of the temple of God in this new covenant era, that is, for the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, verse 1. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. I do pray that you have benefited from this little series on the doctrine of the church. I've said it many times It is very important that we know what we are and what God has called us to do as a church. There are so many misconceptions about this in our day, and so it is especially important for us to pay careful attention to what the Scriptures say regarding the church. And after we know what the Scriptures say concerning the church, what it is and what God has called it to do, we must have both faith and the courage to obey God's Word in these things. It is one thing to know God's Word. It is another thing altogether to obey it. Obeying God's Word is much more difficult than merely knowing it, but it is possible with God's help. Would you agree with me about that, brothers and sisters, that obeying God's Word is more difficult than knowing it? And I think we have found this to be true as it pertains to the doctrine of the Church. I do believe that A sound doctrine of the church has been taught here at Emmaus from the beginning. But we have had to struggle to obey God's word in this regard. We have been faced with many challenges, and we are still faced with many challenges, with many pressures. Pressures from within, pressures from without. May the Lord help us to not only know what God's word says concerning the church, its nature, its character its qualities, its purpose, but also to live according to what God's Word so very clearly says. In this series, we have been considering the church as God's temple. As you know, the New Testament Scriptures describe the church in this way. Under the Old Covenant, Israel built a portable tabernacle and later a permanent temple. The temple was built in Jerusalem. It was grand, it was glorious, it was made of stone and adorned with many precious things. The Old Covenant people of God were blessed to worship there according to the command of God. But we must confess that those structures were not meant to last forever. No, they belonged to the Old Covenant order of things and they pointed forward to the coming Messiah. When Jesus the Messiah came and when He instituted the New Covenant and He shed blood, the Old Covenant temple became obsolete and eventually passed away. Christ himself declared it to be obsolete, desolate, empty. But this did not mean that God was without a temple on earth. No, a greater temple began to be built, the new covenant temple. That is to say, the church is greater than the old because its material is greater, its foundation stones are not really stones, but are in fact the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the cornerstone. So then the foundation of this new covenant, new creation temple is greater. It is more precious than the old one. And the stones out of which the walls of this temple are built are greater too. They are living stones, Peter says. They are the people of God who have been made alive by the Spirit of God. They are those who trust and trust in and rest upon Christ Our foundation. They are those who align with Him and with His teaching. And what is the purpose of this new covenant, new creation temple of God? Its purpose is to worship. It is through this temple that we are to come near to God, to worship His most holy name. And what is its character or quality? Well, those who are stones in God's temple have been made holy by the blood of Christ, received by faith. And those who are stones in God's temple are also pursuing holiness, so that God's temple is marked by holiness. Just as the temple of old was holy, so too the new covenant temple is holy. In fact, we would say the new covenant temple is even more holy than the old one, for it is built up and consists of those who have been washed in the precious blood of Jesus. The New Covenant temple is greater because its material is greater, and it is also greater because it will last forever. The temple that God is now building by His Word and by His Spirit is eternal. It will find its culmination or end in the new heavens and earth that will come into being when Christ returns at the end of the age. The Church of God is the temple of God. As Paul says, Do you not know that you, church, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17. All of that, brothers and sisters, is review. Today, I wish to shift gears a little By talking about the gifts and graces that God has given to His people for the building up of this new creation temple. Today we are going to talk about the gifts and graces that God has given to His people for the building up of this new creation, new covenant temple. Do you remember the Exodus story and how God did not only give instructions for the building of the tabernacle... But he also appointed gifted craftsmen from within Israel to oversee the accomplishment of this work. In fact, we just read a text from Exodus that described this very thing. Instructions were given for the building of the tabernacle. Materials were provided from amongst the people to see that the work would be finished. And then gifted men were appointed to oversee that work and to to be sure that it was constructed according to the design that was shown to Moses on the mountain. Do not forget also how the Lord set the sons of Levi apart to serve as priests in the tabernacle and later temple once these structures were constructed in order to maintain its worship. So, men were set apart to build the tabernacle. Men were set apart to build the temple. Men were appointed to the task of serving within the temple to maintain its worship and to protect its purity, you see. God not only commanded Israel to build these structures so that worship might take place there, but He provided gifts and graces to the people of God to see that the work would be finished and maintained. He provided gifts and graces to the people of God to make sure that the work would be finished and maintained. The same is true, brothers and sisters, under the new covenant. The same is true for God's people under the New Covenant, we are called to build this temple and we are called to maintain the worship of God within it. God has given us instruction and I am saying that God has also given us the needed gifts and needed graces. The Ephesians 4 passage that I read just a moment ago is a very interesting one. This sermon is topical or doctrinal more than it is exegetical. And so we will not be considering every detail of this text. But I want you to notice a few things about this text in general before we focus on the gifts that God has given to His people for the building up of His church. One, notice that Paul is addressing the church here. Specifically, he was writing to the first century church in the city of Ephesus, but his words apply to all churches in all times and places. He is concerned that Christians walk together in a worthy manner within the church. Look at verse 1. There Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you, that is I urge you all, Christians living in Ephesus, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So then... To walk in a worthy manner means that we will walk with others in the church. Walking is often used as a metaphor in the scriptures for living the Christian life. And here I am simply drawing your attention to the fact that to live the Christian life in a worthy way involves living it with others and within the church. There is no walking worthy if you are not a part of the church. That should be clear from your survey of the New Testament in general, and it is certainly clear in this text. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and says to them all that they are to walk worthy. And the commands that he give clarify that this is a reference to communal living. He is commanding the Christians to be patient with one another, to have humility in their midst, to be gentle with one another, to bear with one another in love. This is not something that you can do as an individual believer in Christ, but it is something that must be obeyed within the context of the church. We must walk with others in the church. Specifically, Paul urges us to be humble, patient, gentle, and long-suffering in love. And notice how often love is mentioned in this passage. Pay special attention to this. Love repeats. The word love repeats. In verse 2, we are urged to, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bear with one another in love. In verse 15, we are commanded to speak the truth in love. And in verse 16, Paul insists that the church is to build itself up In love. What is the one thing that is to characterize our life together in Christ Jesus? It is love that is to characterize our life together. Yes, we are to do many things together, but all that we do, it must be done in love. Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this will be the defining characteristic of Christ's church. The the world will know that we belong to Him if we love one another. Peter wrote, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. This is Peter's way of saying, because you have been born again, because you belong to God through faith in Christ Jesus, you must love one another sincerely and from the heart. How Christians can think that the Christian life can be lived in isolation from the church is beyond me. The New Testament is a church book through and through. Everything you read there is to be applied and obeyed in the context of the church Uh, from beginning to end. The New Testament is in fact a church book, and you see it here in this passage and those I have just read. And Paul warned us, if we speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, we are a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if we have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if we have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, we are nothing. This is a powerful message from Paul. It doesn't matter what your gifts and graces are. It doesn't matter how spiritual you think you are. If you have not love, you are nothing. It doesn't matter how eloquent you are. You might be the most eloquent man on earth, but if you have not love, you are nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You're just making noise. You're doing nothing for good. And so, brothers and sisters, Paul is here speaking to the church. He wants us to live with one another In humility and gentleness, with patience, we are to bear with one another, but he wants to be sure that we love one another within the church. Two, notice that Paul is especially concerned with the church's (coughs) unity. He is especially concerned with the church's unity. In verse three, he urges us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I like the word eager here in verse three, it means to do something with intense motivation. We are to be deeply committed to maintaining unity. We are to strive for it. We are to work hard at it. Why? Because of what the church is. We must be eager to maintain unity. We must work hard at it because of what the church is. Now, Paul does not use the imagery of temple here in this passage. Instead, he uses the imagery of body. So, yes, I will admit it. In this series, we are now mixing metaphors a little bit. But the truth is the same. We must be eager to maintain unity in the church because of what the church is. The church is the body of Christ. Will we allow the body of Christ to be torn to pieces? I suppose we could also say, the church is God's temple. Will we allow the stones of God's temple to be knocked to the ground and divided? Because of our pride, because of our impatience, because of our harshness and lack of love, we must not let it be so, brothers and sisters, but we must strive. We must be eager to maintain unity. We must work hard at it. We ought not to sin against one another. And if we do, in humility, we should repent and ask for forgiveness. This is the kind of work that needs to be done within the body of Christ in order to maintain its unity. Unity must be maintained because of what the church is. The church is the body of Christ. And verse 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's a beautiful text. And what word did you hear repeated? It's the word one. Over and over again in verses 4 through 6, the word one is repeated Paul is saying because the church is the one body of Christ and because you have been filled with the one Spirit of God and because you have been called to the one hope and because you have the one Lord and one faith and one baptism and you have the one God as Father, therefore you are to strive to maintain unity within the church. In reality, Christ's church is one. If we consider the church from God's perspective, there is one body, not many. There is one Spirit who has called us, regenerated us, filled us, and is sanctifying us. All who belong to God share in the same Spirit. And we have the same Lord. Jesus Christ is our Lord. And we share the same faith. We confess the same faith together. And we have been baptized with the same baptism. Above all, we have the same God as Father. This is the reality. Now Paul is urging us to maintain that unity That is ours. In reality, sin always threatens to divide us here on earth. False teaching threatens to divide us. Our pride threatens to divide us. Our sinful behavior, our thoughts, words, and deeds threaten to divide us. But Paul is here saying that we must be zealous for unity. We must work hard at it. For we are the body of Christ. He, Christ, is the head and we are all members united to him by faith. If we are to use the theme of this sermon series, we are God's temple. Will we destroy the temple that God is building on earth by our sin? Paul warns against that in that 1 Corinthians passage that I have already read. Or will we labor to promote its unity and to build it up? Paul commands that we maintain its unity and build it up. Three, Paul teaches that God has given grace and gifts to each one of us. For the building up of the body, or to use the theme of this series, the temple of Christ. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, now Paul cites Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen. When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And then Paul comments... In saying he ascended, referring to the ascension of Christ, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. Some translations say of the earth, and I think I prefer that translation. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. Again, this is a reference to the descent and then ascent of Christ. But here is the point for the sermon today. And he gave gifts to men and he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ now earlier i did warn you that this is more of a topical sermon than a expositional sermon on Ephesians 4 And I said that mainly because I knew I would have to leave a lot of riches unmined here in verses 7 through 12 especially. This is a marvelous passage. And I acknowledge that there is a lot that could be said from this passage concerning the doctrine of the descent, concerning the incarnation, concerning the accomplishment of our redemption by the incarnate Son. And someday I will work through this text slowly with you, Lord willing. For now... I want us to focus our attention on the theme of gifts and graces. What are the gifts? What are the graces that God has given to His church so that it might be built up in unity, so that it might be built up in maturity, so that it might be built up in love? Here in this passage, Paul teaches us that Christ descended to earth and even into the lower regions of the earth To accomplish our salvation and to set captives free. And when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he gave gifts to his people. In other words, when he sent forth his Spirit from on high, he gave gifts to his church so that the church might be built up in love. So, according to Ephesians 4, what are the gifts that Christ gave to the church when he ascended? What are they? The interpretation that I'm going to present to you right now might surprise you a little bit because it is not the common one, so pay careful attention. The gifts that Christ gave to His church are the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. The gifts, according to Ephesians 4, and clearly according to Ephesians 4, that Christ gave to His church are the apostles prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, before you get all up in arms, saying, but has not God given spiritual gifts to all of His people? Please hear me say this clearly. Yes, He has. And we will get to that in this sermon, and other passages of Scripture speak much more clearly concerning this reality. God "...through Christ and by His Spirit has given gifts to all of His people, spiritual gifts, that are to be used for the building up of the body of Christ." But something else is being stressed here in Ephesians 4, and it is clear as day. Paul is emphasizing that Christ has given the church the gift... Or the gifts of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. This is what verse seven so clearly says. After teaching that Christ gave gifts to men when he ascended, he says, "And he gave." So here it is. What did he give? What are these gifts that he gave? Here it is. And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. That is Ephesians 4:11. Notice he does not say that he gave some people the gift of apostleship, prophecy, evangelism, shepherding, and teaching. Though that is true, it is not what he says. He says that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Please forgive the redundancy. The redundancy is needed because this fact is so often overlooked. In other words, it is those who are gifted and set apart to these offices who are themselves said to be the gifts that Christ has given to his church. The apostles and prophets were gifts to the church. To employ the language of temple, they are the foundation upon which the church is built. Christ is the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets point to Him. The apostles and prophets were, notice the past tense, gifts to the church. They are the foundation upon which the church is being built. Evangelists are also gifts to the church. Notice the present tense here. Evangelists are ministers of the Word of God who are sent by the church to proclaim the gospel to the world and to plant new churches. Evangelists are ministers of the Word on the move. Evangelists must be careful to build upon the foundation of Christ, the apostles and prophets only. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What the scriptures call evangelists we might in modern times call missionaries. They are ministers of the Word of God on the move. They are those who are sent out to preach the gospel and to plant churches here in this place into the farthest reaches of the earth. Evangelists are said to be gifts to the church. And finally, shepherds and teachers are said to be gifts to the church. Elders or pastors are called to shepherd God's people. Elders are to be able to teach. 1 Timothy 3.2 is very clear about this. But some elders may be more gifted in teaching than others, and some elders may be set apart to the ministry of teaching more than others. Paul hints at this fact in 1 Timothy 5.12 where he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So all elders are to rule. All elders are to be apt to teach. They are to be able to teach. But here, Paul makes a distinction between those who rule well and especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The point is this. Here in Ephesians 4, shepherds and teachers are said to be gifts that are given to the church. Now, I've been eager to say this for about the last five minutes. I'll say it now. It feels a little strange To say that shepherds and teachers are gifts to the church, given that I myself am a shepherd and teacher in Christ's church. There are a couple of things that are very awkward to preach about as a pastor. One of them is giving. Pastors should be supported, and it feels strange to say it, given that I am a pastor. But it must be said, for the Word of God clearly teaches it. And it also feels a bit strange to say that shepherds and teachers are a gift to Christ's church, given that I myself am one, but it must be said, for the scriptures say it. There is no boasting or pride in this. After all, this is by the grace of God alone. There is no room for boasting, therefore. Brothers and sisters, if the church is to be healthy, if the church is to be healthy, It must have a proper view of evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. The church must see them as gifts from Christ. The church must pay them proper respect. The church must also support them in their work and highly value the service that they render to the people of God. And I am afraid that many in our day have very little appreciation For the work of pastors, and this may be in part because pastors themselves have not taken their work seriously, but have been negligent in it so very often. What then were the apostles and prophets called to do? And what are evangelists, shepherds, and teachers called to do today? Answer, they are one to equip or perfect the saints 2 to devote themselves to the work of the ministry and 3 build up the body of Christ this they are to do through the preaching and teaching of the word of god and prayer in full reliance upon the holy spirit this interpretation that i have just given you might seem strange to you because there is another faulty interpretation of this text that has taken hold in our day and I have grown more and more convinced that it is the source of a lot of trouble. The common interpretation of Ephesians 12 is this. Shepherds and teachers are to equip the saints, and it is the saints who are then called to do the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ. Have you heard that interpretation today? It is very common. So evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are gifts to the church. Maybe some will see that the text clearly says that. I'll, I'll buy that. But what then are shepherds and teachers to do? What are pastors to do? To use more familiar terminology, what are they to do? What is their ministry to be all about? What is their work to be about? Well, many in our day say that pastors are to equip the saints, and then it is the saints who are to do the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ. I should make this shape, shouldn't I? It's a pyramid scheme, if I were to be snarky about it. That is what it is. It's the model that most corporations uh, employ today. So the pastor is to be at the top like the CEO. And he is to delegate, delegate, delegate. He is to equip the saints, and the saints are to do the work of the ministry, and the saints are to build up the body of Christ. This is the common view today. And I think it is very problematic. The ESV and other modern translations do not help the problem by not including a comma after the phrase, to equip the saints, in verse 12. The Old King James Version captures the meaning best when it renders the Greek like this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, and now I quote the Old King James, for the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, For the edifying of the body of Christ, you see. So the commas there help to clarify that these three things are the work that pastors, or shepherds and teachers, are called to do. It is a very important point that is here made in Ephesians 4, I think. I walk you through this not to be nitpicky, but because I've been grown thoroughly convinced that a lot of the problems in the modern evangelical church stem from this misinterpretation and misuse of Ephesians 4.12. Pastors often neglect the work of the ministry that God has called them to, and they view themselves as facilitators instead Like good CEOs, they have been taught that one of the keys to good leadership within an organization is delegation. You, Pastor, many modern church growth manuals will say, are to equip the saints, and they, in turn, are to do the work of the ministry. The trouble is this the church is not a business. Also, the ministry is not something that all Christians or members have been called to enter into, only pastors have. Brothers and sisters, there are some things that pastors simply should not delegate to others. Pastors must be pastors. Now please hear me, I'm not opposed to delegation, brothers and sisters. But there is such a thing as over-delegation or inappropriate delegation. Think of the nuclear family for a moment. Is it appropriate for a father to delegate the task of taking the trash cans to the curb to his teenage boys as I do? Appropriate. Wonderful delegation. You know, I, I often play this card now. Will you guys take the trash cans to the curb for your old man, you know? <laughs> and they do, cheerfully. It's appropriate. But now I ask you, is it appropriate for a father to delegate the task of disciplining his children and teaching them the things of God to another man or to some other institution? No. No. Fathers need to be fathers. Others may help, but the task of teaching the children the ways of the Lord, the task of disciplining the children, is something that only a father can do, really. Only a mother can do this. Only a father can do this. This sort of thing should not be delegated to others. A husband needs to be a husband to his wife. Right, There are some things that simply cannot be delegated. And so it is with pastors. Pastors must shepherd. They must labor faithfully to move the members of the church along to maturity. They must do the work of the ministry. This is a work that they have been called to do. They must labor to build up the body of Christ over whom God has made them overseers. Colossians 1, 28-29 has become dear to me. In this text, you can see clearly that Paul the Apostle understood that this was his calling. He said this, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It is not the exact same language as is found in Ephesians 4, which is our text for today. But here you could see that Paul viewed himself in this regard as an apostle and those who are ministering the Word with him. He says, listen, this is our aim. We proclaim Christ. We warn everyone. We teach everyone with all wisdom. This is our aim to present them mature in Christ. And I struggle and toil with all that is in me, uh, with the strength that God provides, to paraphrase uh, Paul here in Colossians 1 through 29. Let us move rather quickly now through the remainder of our texts. Evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are to be viewed as gifts to the church, and what is their calling? They are to, one, equip the saints, two, do the work of the ministry, and three, build up the body of Christ. How long are they to do this for? Verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. When will this happen in full? When Christ returns to make all things new, or when He calls us home through death. So then, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers will serve in Christ's church throughout this new covenant era. They are to do this faithfully all the days of their life as long as the Lord has them in a particular place to minister there. They are to do this throughout this New Covenant era as the Lord continues to give gifts to His church so that the church might be built up according to the truth. We will not reach perfection until we pass into glory, but we will make progress in this life, won't we? I hope it is true. Pastors should labor to help the members of their churches to mature. I want you to look with me now in verse 14. So that, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The the, the work of the minister is to teach, it's to exhort, it's to encourage the people of God. It is to build up the body of Christ so that this is true. So that the church is not tossed this way and that by the schemes of the evil one. Maturity should be the result of the work of the ministry that takes place within a congregation. Earlier I asked if it is true that God has given spiritual gifts not only to evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, but to all of His people. And I said, yes, indeed. And then I said we would get to that. So where in this passage do we find this teaching that all of God's people have spiritual gifts, which are useful to the building up of the body or temple of Christ? It is not in verses 11 through 12, Paul is addressing something else there, But this truth is hinted at in verses 15 through 16. Let me read them again. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In the body of Christ, there are many parts. Does that teaching sound familiar to you? In the body of Christ, there are many parts. Just as the human body has many parts to it, so the body of Christ has many parts to it. If you were to go to that very famous spiritual gifts passage in 1 Corinthians 12, you would see that Paul uses this metaphor there. And there he develops it much more thoroughly as he teaches about the variety of gifts that were present in the first century church when the apostles and prophets were still ministering, many of which are still present in the church today. He reminds the Corinthians that they are members of one body. In 1 Corinthians 12.12 he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we are all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body, etc., etc. There Paul is saying to the church, you are one in Christ Jesus. There is only one body, Christ is the head. But there are many parts. And so you need to know that you are an important part of the body of Christ. It does not matter if you are a foot or a hand, metaphorically speaking, or an eye or an ear, metaphorically speaking. You need to understand what God has made you to be. You need to understand the gifts that He has given to you. And you need to use them for the building up of the body of Christ, for the building up of God's temple church. There in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul urges members of the church to be content with the place that God has given to them within the church. We are to be content with our place and with our particular giftedness, brothers and sisters. And we are to be faithful to use the gifts that God has given to us for the building up of the body of Christ. And if we are faithful to use the gifts that God has given to us, who knows if He will not add to our giftedness, and call us to other forms of service within Christ's temple church. But notice this. God gives these gifts, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, and also spiritual gifts to each and every member of the body of Christ so that the body of Christ would be built up. This is the purpose of spiritual gifts. These gifts and graces that God has given to the church are given So that the body might be built up. When each part of the body is working properly, the body builds itself up in love. The gifts that we have, whether they are speaking gifts like teaching or encouragement, or serving gifts like service or hospitality, are to be used to build up the body. Each one of us must use the gifts that God has given to us to build up God's church And thus to further his kingdom. Uh, Maybe to play off of Paul's metaphor. We all have skin in the game. Brothers and sisters. We all have a part to play. In the furthering of God's kingdom. In the building up of his temple church. In the building up of the body of Christ. Here on earth. But I do wish to stress this. Before we conclude. The key ingredient in both of these passages, Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 and then 13, the key ingredient that Paul keeps coming back to again and again is what? It is love. It is love. Without love, we are nothing, brothers and sisters. So we cannot fake this, you see. We cannot simply go about Our duties in the church, whatever they may be, speaking duties, service duties, whatever they may be, we cannot simply discharge those duties in a heartless way. We must be sure that we are filled with love for God and that we are doing all things for the glory of His name. We must be sure that we are filled with love for one another. We must also be sure that we are truly eager to maintain unity in our midst, that we have humility and patience, that we have gentleness and kindness, that we are long-suffering. What does that word imply, brothers and sisters? What does that word long-suffering imply except trouble? (laughs) That's what it implies. There is going to be trouble in Christ's church. We are going to struggle with sin. We must be long-suffering. We must be patient with one another, gentle and humble, as we walk with one another in this world and as we are sanctified together In Christ Jesus our Lord. True love. God's love. Must motivate all of our speaking. And all of our doing. We must love one another from the heart. May the Lord bless this congregation. And all true congregations. With faithful ministers of the word of God. And with mature members. Who know what it is to serve one another in love. May we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let us bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, We thank You for the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. We thank You that You have redeemed us so as to reconcile us to Yourself. I pray that we as Your people would live to worship and serve You. I pray that we would live to glorify Your name. I also pray, O Lord, that You would make it our aim to further Your kingdom, to build up Your temple, to grow and to build up the body of Christ. Show us our place, O Lord. Help us to, from the heart, give of our time and of our treasures. Help us to, from the heart, use the spiritual gifts that you have given to us for the building up of the body of Christ. I do pray for the ministry of the Word in this place, that now and for generations to come, your Word would be ministered faithfully so that the body of Christ would be moved towards maturity more and more. God, do help us to love one another. I pray that you would keep our hearts pure in this regard, that we would forgive from the heart, that we would speak the truth and love to one another, that we would walk alongside one another even through times of great difficulty. You have called us to this, O Lord, and so help us to be the church that you have called us to be for our good and for the glory of your name. And all of God's people say, Amen.